we can do a better job of listening to Black women in terms of their own lived experience as they navigate the healthcare system. How to make pregnancy less dangerous for Black women. For Sunday, July 9th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. That report on the Black maternal mortality crisis in today's Sunday cover story. We'll also head to Phoenix, where the city has been clearing out a large homeless encampment and hear how they're keeping unhoused people safe in the midst of a heat wave. And we'll take a behind-the-scenes look at audiobooks. When I'm doing an audiobook, I get to play a leading man. In this week's Enlighten Me segment, more and more people are hungry for mindfulness. We'll visit a Buddhist monastery to talk about it. I met the Buddhists, and they told me that everything is inherently unsatisfying, hence that's why I was still unhappy. And I was like, oh. All those stories after these news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is on a European trip with the first stop in London, where he will meet with King Charles and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Later this week, Biden travels to Lithuania for the annual NATO summit, where Ukrainian security will be among the topics discussed. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The United States would be prepared to provide various forms of military assistance, intelligence and information sharing, cyber support, and other forms of material support so that Ukraine can both defend itself and deter future aggression. Speaking there on board Air Force One. Today, Biden talked by phone with Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to convince him to allow Sweden into the alliance. Erdogan has been against it because he says Stockholm hasn't done enough to rein in the Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, those supporters who continue to hold demonstrations in Sweden. The presidents of Ukraine and Poland paid tribute to the victims of a World War II massacre that has historically been a source of tension between the two countries. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more. Tens of thousands of Poles were killed by Ukrainian nationalists between 1943 and 1945 in what is known as the Volynia Massacre. Polish historians say Poles also killed about 12,000 Ukrainians in retaliatory attacks. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Polish President Andrzej Duda are trying to make sure that this history does not divide their nations today. They offered flowers and candles at a memorial at a church in the western Ukrainian city of Lutsk. In a video posted to social media, Zelensky called the moment historic. We value every life, he said, and we remember history and defend freedom together. Joanna Kikissis, NPR News, Kyiv. As Phoenix tackles a crisis in homelessness, it faces a deadline tomorrow to comply with a judge's ruling to clear out hundreds of people from an encampment. From member station KJZZ, Kristen Dorman has more. Local residents and business owners in Phoenix filed the lawsuit last year, calling the encampment known as The Zone a public health and safety concern and claiming the city wasn't doing enough to address the issue. Rachel Milney is the director of the City of Phoenix Office of Homeless Solutions. I am happy with what we've accomplished so far. And really what that is, is we've shut down three blocks in the area where people were camping. The City of Phoenix is also facing a lawsuit from the American Civil Liberties Union of Arizona, which says the city has been violating the constitutional rights of unhoused people during encampment cleanup sweeps. For NPR News, I'm Kirsten Dorman in Phoenix. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Massachusetts state highway officials believe this coming week will be the true test of the effects of the Sumner tunnel, Tunnel closure. The aging tunnel from East Boston to downtown is closed for repairs through the end of next month. Full-time construction inside the tunnel has been underway since last week, but MassDOT Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver believes Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday will be the big test because it's a non-holiday week and those are high traffic days. To get some tips on navigating around the Sumner Tunnel, go to WBUR.org. Flood warnings and watches have been posted for parts of Massachusetts. The forecast is calling for heavy rain and thunderstorms and high winds late tonight into Monday. The National Weather Service is showing central and western Massachusetts will be impacted the most from these fast-moving storms over the next 24 hours. A father in Maine died while trying to save his two daughters from drowning in a pond Saturday afternoon. The warden service says Henry Brooks of Hope jumped into the water to rescue his 12- and 13-year-old girls who fell into deeper water. His 27-year-old son helped with the effort and pulled the girls to safety but could not find his father. Divers found Brooks's body later that night, 50 feet from shore. State fire officials are warning people to be vigilant after unexploded firework shells washed up on a beach in Martha's Vineyard last week. Members of the state police bomb squad responded to Chappaquiddick to remove the 25 shells on July 5th, the day after Edgartown's fireworks display. Here's Fire Marshal spokesperson Jake Wark. Our main goal in putting this information out is so that anyone who sees a similar device or an unknown device on the beach knows to leave it alone. Uh, call 911 uh, and let the professionals who are trained and have specialized protective equipment, let those professionals deal with them. The state fire marshal says the vendor Central Maine Pyrotechnics may have intentionally thrown the shells into the ocean. The company's state license, license has been suspended. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. I have two little stinky little boys. I say that lovingly. Eden, eight, and Asher, two. Anna Rodney is 38 years old and lives in Baltimore, Maryland with her sons. She says she always imagined the birth of her first child would be beautiful, what she considered a very natural thing. I wanted to have a home birth. I wanted to have a water birth. I'm a hippie. I used to tease my friends, like, leave me alone. I'm going to just go to the woods and give birth to my son. That didn't happen. During her pregnancy, Rodney had life-threatening blood clots in her left leg. She says she repeatedly told doctors about her symptoms and was repeatedly ignored. That didn't change until a friend who was a nurse went with her to the hospital and demanded that Rodney be admitted. After she delivered her son by C-section, internal bleeding led to an emergency surgery. Weeks later, her incision site became infected. Rodney says that even though the pain was so intense that she could barely walk, a doctor checked the scar and said she was fine. The next day, she went back to the ER and was admitted with an aggressive infection. And while all of this was happening to her, her son Aiden was also struggling for his life. He was born at 28 weeks. Her son was one pound, five ounces when he was born. He spent about six months in the NICU. Rodney spoke to NPR producer Brianna Scott. 
She says she hoped when she gave birth that it would be a partnership between her and the medical staff. But that wasn't the case. I was also navigating institutionalized racism, fat phobia, and all types of different biases and felt the need to qualify myself every time I had a question or a pushback or a concern about my son's care. I felt that I needed to recite my resume or somehow prove that I was worth listening to, as if him being inside me for the last couple of months did not make me enough of an expert on my child. So she had to advocate for herself and her son over and over and over again. My baby is going to come out of this hospital. My baby is going to survive. I believe that if I hadn't personally made that decision, that I don't know that Aiden would be here playing Switch and going to camp and playing soccer and watching a Mario movie. The U.S. has the highest maternal mortality rate of the world's high-income countries. And in recent years, the numbers have gotten worse. According to a new study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Maternal death rates remain the highest among black women, and those high rates have more than doubled over the last 20 years. When compared to white women, black women are more than twice as likely to experience severe pregnancy-related complications. They're nearly three times as likely to die. For our Sunday cover story, we look at why this problem is getting worse and what doctors can do to start to fix it. I spoke to Karen Sheffield Abdullah about it. She's a nurse midwife and professor of nursing at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She works with medical staff to help improve maternal health outcomes. I asked her why in all this time it's been so hard to reverse this trend. If I were to be perfectly honest and transparent, I think one of the biggest pieces of it is that we can do a better job of listening to black women and what they are saying in terms of their own lived experience as they navigate the healthcare system and really how they're interfacing with the healthcare system in ways that are not optimal and truthfully biased. Can you tell me about any one particular situation that comes to mind that you've been in where doctors you worked with or you know have acknowledged unconscious bias that might be getting in the way of listening and, and any approaches that they took differently that, that had a different outcome? I did grand rounds at a particular academic hospital with physicians, medical students, residents, attendings, nurse midwives, and I was speaking in particular about the importance of listening to black women when they speak. And so there was a particular attending who identified as a white female physician of 20 years who said, Karen, how do we even have the conversation surrounding stress and mental health for Black individuals in particular, like I don't even know where to start. And what I explained was for Black individuals, our pain is notoriously underassessed and underaddressed. And we really need to think about these higher profile individuals like Serena Williams, like Allison Felix, like Beyonce, like Tori Bowie. But as we think about Serena Williams, knowing that she had a history of a blood clot from 2010, and then after her delivery, she was complaining of symptoms and she wasn't listened to. And so what happened was this person then took that story anecdotally and that very week after the grand rounds, she saw a black patient in the office who came in with really vague complaints of calf pain. And she said it wasn't really high suspicion for a blood clot or what we call a DVT 
or deep vein thrombosis. But she said, you know what? I listened to what Dr. Sheffield Adula had to say, and specifically the story regarding Serena Williams. And I went ahead and I ordered an ultrasound. And indeed, this individual had a blood clot. And it is a direct correlation to the fact that that grand rounds where it was elevated that we need to listen to Black women, that I changed the way in which I practice. And I want to be able to get that message back to Dr. Sheffield Abdullah. And so to me, that is at the essence of what we need to be doing as healthcare providers. This person came to the office kind of downplaying her complaint of calf pain, but that particular provider listened, did the testing that needed to be done, and that's a potential life saved. Why do you think doctors have such a hard time listening? Because you mentioned some of the high-profile stories, particularly people like Serena Williams, and I feel like that cuts across so much because you see this and you think, if somebody as accomplished and in tune with her body as Serena Williams is not being listened to, Who else isn't being listened to? What do you think the root of this broad problem is? I think as we think about physicians in particular, they tend to not have a lot of time to be able to spend with their patients, right? If we think about their schedules and how many patients they are slotted to see in a given day, they don't have the time to sit down and do the deeper dive, to really sit and listen to what is going on for this particular individual, what's happening socioculturally, what's happening psychosocially, what's happening with their mental health, what's happening with their their ability to be able to access certain resources, right? And so if we're not able to assess that, we're not giving optimal care. So listening to you, I hear a way forward on the individual level, on the ground level for doctors and and medical professionals of just just listen more, believe patients more, seek out subtle clues. What are the broader systemic fixes to this? Certainly we would could think about diversifying the healthcare workforce so that the individuals who are taking care of the community look like the community they're serving. Right? So diversifying the healthcare workforce inclusive of physicians, midwives, doulas, mental health care providers. I think funding studies that center the lived experience of Black women um, and Black birthing people is super important. And I truly believe that if we were to ask the Black community, what do they need? They would tell us. And rather than us as academicians and researchers and physicians pontificating from our silos about what we think a community needs, how about we spend the time asking the community, what is it that they need? Because they know better than we do. If you feel like you are not being heard, then you go on to the next person, you speak to the next person until you feel you are being heard. Because it truly is life and death. And I honestly believe that I want to create a society by which Black women are seen, they are heard, and they are inherently valued. And that is fundamental. And so if they are not being heard, take it to the next person, elevate it, escalate it until you are heard. Because they are really reconciling, having conversations with their partners, with their spouses, If you have to choose between me and the baby, choose the baby. And the fact that they're having those conversations in 2023 in this here United States is just unacceptable. You tick through 
all of these enormous challenges. And you keep coming back in conversation to this solution that seems so simple. But I, I imagine that 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 there's there's layers there of just be quiet and listen to people in the doctor's office. When I was thinking about this, listening to black women, it seems so simple. And yet it is not easy for healthcare providers, right? And so really spending the time to help educate healthcare providers of different race ethnicities as they're taking care of this community, of the black community, to be able to do the work, Scott, to be able to do their work of understanding the historical nature of why a community may show up with mistrust and distrust, sitting with that, having done your own work, Right. And then sitting and saying, how might I best support you? I don't know that we can ever be culturally competent in another person's culture, but I can certainly show up in a culturally humble way that says, I don't know everything. But I am here to learn to how best take care of you. What do I need to know about you to best support you across your prenatal course so that we can optimize your pregnancy and birth outcomes? And the CDC is clear, four out of five of pregnancy-related deaths are preventable. We need to do better, and we can. That's Dr. Karen Sheffield-Abdullah. She's a nurse midwife and a professor of nursing at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It is 73 degrees in Boston under cloudy skies at 518. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR, we take a closer look into the presidential bid of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the anti-vaccine activist who has announced that he'll challenge President Biden in the primaries. That's at 6 on the New Yorker Radio Hour on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. At Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox just beat the Oakland A's. Final score, 4-3. WVUR supporters include Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden is on a European trip with a first stop in London to meet with King Charles and British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. He then heads to Lithuania for the NATO summit and later to Helsinki to welcome Finland to the alliance. Topics for the summit include Ukraine security and expanding NATO. Russia is denouncing Ukraine and Turkey for violating a prisoner exchange agreement the three sides negotiated last year amid the war in Ukraine. This after five Ukrainian commanders returned home from Turkey where they had been held after being freed from Russian captivity. And at the weekend box office, Sony's horror film Insidious, The Red Door, took the top spot with an estimated $32 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's time for our podcast corner, where we bring you a podcast we love from the NPR network. Today, we go to Chicago member station WBEZ to hear their podcast, Nerdette. Their recent series, Undercover, looks at how a book comes to life, from the blurbs on the cover to film adaptations. And this week's focus is audiobooks. Host Greta Johnson picks it up from here. Meet Sarah Jaffe. She's an executive producer at Penguin Random House Audio. What that actually means is uh, mostly I think my 10-year-old self would be thrilled. I get paid to read books all day, talk to really brilliant authors, and then do sort of the dream casting that I think we all do in our heads of like, okay, what kind of voice uh, would would I need to, to play this character? And then I get to find and hire that voice. One of my favorite voices is this guy. I am Kevin R. Free. I am a multi-hyphenate artist, and I suppose I'm on the Nerdette podcast because I'm an audiobook narrator. That is the hat for which you are interviewing me. Kevin has been wearing that hat since 2000. I love him because he narrates Martha Wells' Murderbot Diaries. I could have pulled out at this point, sabotaged the hoppers, and got my humans out of there, leaving the rogue units stuck on the other side of an ocean. That would have been the smart thing to do. But I wanted to kill them. Which is a much more delightful series than the title may suggest. It could be really easy to think of an audiobook as a person just reading stuff out loud. Anyone could do that, right? Actually, though, it takes a lot of artistry. For Kevin, it wasn't even a career path he had originally considered. I grew up wanting to be an actor, and that meant theater, and then eventually TV, and then movies, and then, you know, death. It took him a while to fully embrace audiobook narration as the actual goal. But he says it's the only time he gets to use all of his talents as an actor. You know, when I'm doing an audiobook, I get to play a leading man. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exciting. Another one of my favorite readers is Robin Miles. I'm your pretty much garden variety actor. Went to conservatory to train, studied a little in, Eng- in England, which was really fun. And then I discovered audiobooks, and it pulled my focus. <laughs> Robin has range. I first heard her when she did the sci-fi series The Broken Earth Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin. She's also known for narrating Isabel Wilkerson's nonfiction book, The Warmth of Other Suns. You can also hear her doing fiction like The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. Evelyn Hugo is one of the biggest movie stars of all time. She doesn't even have to have something to say for people to listen. This could be a big cover for us, right? I mean, she's a living legend. Wasn't she married eight times or something? Seven, Frankie says. And yes, this has huge potential, which is why I hope you'll bear with me through the next part of this. Both Robin and Kevin said they don't read the book before agreeing to voice it, which to me feels like a big risk. Do you ever regret that? <laughs> um, you didn't hear it from me, but yes. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Wow, I'm just really giving you all the tea, all the secrets here. 
They decide based on what they know, who the author is, the synopsis of the book, stuff like that. So a lot of times I don't know what the book is going to be about, except for the description that is sent to me by a publisher. If they accept the gig, then they start reading. Sometimes Robin's husband helps her out with that part. He's Robin's production manager, and he's a super fast reader. If she's tight on time, she has some tricks, too. What I've discovered is that most mainstream books, right around page 80, you're going to find, like, the first significant incident. As the narrators are reading, they are taking lots of notes. Some are probably pretty obvious. Names they don't know how to pronounce, pivotal scenes with a big emotional moment, stuff like that. But what really blew my mind to think about was how narrators bring characters to life with different voices. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes the book mentions an accent specifically. Like the pirates. Good Lord. You know, all that Cockney accent, right? When all them pirates are... Uh, and it's just it's just pounding on my vocal cords. One, one book I did had the character, the actual human, like Howlin' Wolf, the blues singer. And basically, I mean, Howlin' Wolf basically sounds all like that, you know. <laughs> she says and then coughs. But sometimes a character's characteristics are a lot more subtle. For example, what might a really tall woman named Fran sound like? Robin has a whole process of figuring that out. The other character's like five foot three, so and they're best friends. So every time she's with her best friend, she's looking down. So I just I took my finger and I said, well, what happens if I just tip my chin down and start talking from that position? And I moved my text down so that I could I could keep the physical position. And all of a sudden, when I did that, when I put my finger here and it compressed my voice box just a little bit. And then see what happens when I right now I'm doing that right now. I'm compressing my voice box. You get and that that's Fran. And that's where she talks. As Robin and Kevin mentioned, they're both professional actors. But sometimes there's another sort of person who narrates an audiobook, the author themselves. With nonfiction, especially memoir, it's pretty common for the writer to be the narrator, whether or not they have a performance background. I never thought about, like, somebody else narrating mine. Well, I mean, I would like to hear what Michael Fassbender would do with the text. <laughs> you know, if he'd give kind of a, um, just kind of a muscular read of my work. That is the delightful Maeve Higgins. She's a comedian. You might hear her sometimes on the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. She's also the author of two books, Maeve in America and Tell Everyone on This Train I Love Them. And she narrated both of them. Because I'm a performer and a writer, it was kind of obvious for me. And also, you know, to be crass, Greta, you also get paid. It's like another way of getting paid because whoever narrates the audiobook, you know, it's a job. So if you do it, then you get the money. What's less common, but still happens now and then, is for a fiction writer to narrate their own book. Mosin Hamid is the author of five novels and a collection of essays, and he's narrated all of them. In a city swollen by refugees, but still mostly at peace, or at least not yet openly at war, a young man met a young woman in a classroom and did not speak to her for many days. He says narrating his own words made the most sense to him, too, but for a different reason than Maeve. I probably spend more time in my study pacing around reading my manuscripts out loud than I do actually typing into my computer. You know, I'm a very oral, I guess, writer. Uh, I, I, I write through my ears. And, um, and so it was just natural, I guess, to, to go and record them. 
Whether you're a professional actor or someone who talks to yourself in your study, the recording process itself is pretty similar. Based on how many pages the book is, you can figure out how long it'll take to record the text. Generally, it's about twice as long as the final product. That means if you're listening to a 10-hour audiobook, that probably took about 20 hours in the studio. Though, of course, some narrators are faster than others. Once that voice or voices are hired and the studio time is booked, the narrators show up and just read. Just kidding. For the actors, there are definitely some vocal warm-ups involved. In the morning, I do one that goes, I go low and very high. So I go, oh, and open my throat. So I do that. That's one. This is very embarrassing to me. <laughs> Blowing out my lips, humming, hmm, using lots of vibrations. I beat, in, beat on my chest like that. Um, I also do a deep breathing exercise where I just go, hello. as long as I can. My voice goes down into my body uh, and gets supported by all the muscles uh, between the ribs. And then I'm ready to go. Maeve mentioned there are also some rules. You're not supposed to eat chocolate or like drink fizzy drinks or anything because it makes your voice cool. Kind of funny. (laughs) And then comes the reading. Even if a narrator is alone in a studio, usually at least one person is listening in by Zoom or something similar. That is the director. Their role is to help the narrator understand and interpret the text to really bring it to life. Here's Mosin Hamid again. Director, you know, it's a bit like, I guess, a conductor in an orchestra, right, who's who's sort of, as you're going, um, you know, telling you when to bring up the woodwinds and when to sort of reduce the strings. Simone Barros is an audiobook director. She says her role is to be the eyes and ears for the producer. She also thinks of narrating as a sort of instrumentation. I consider the audiobook an actor's medium because they sometimes are voicing several characters and all keeping those characters in a certain sound and tone and genre. And so for directing it, it's great to be a support to them and to catch all of the fine details that you're going to miss when you're in the moment bringing a character to life. Directing is all about being super present in the room during the recording, but also listening with fresh ears as a listener would. I think there's room in audiobooks and where the ones that sing are so strong is when the voice is really present and intimate with the listener. And then there's also rhythm that when you're carried along with the book, because the actor is really giving you um, a strong sense of thrust when the scenes are tense and have action in them or have, you know, an argument between them, when they follow that through in the rhythm and you can feel through the punctuation of the words and the thrusting through from the words, that argument surrounds you or that action moment surrounds you. And that's what a really beautiful audiobook can do. It really takes you places. So once the recording is done, once the narrator has gotten through the whole text and the director has helped them do it, often in full eight-hour recording days at a studio, the audio goes off to editors. They're the ones who take that 20 hours of recording, which has good stuff in it, but maybe also some stumbles or stutters or bad pronunciations, and they take all that stuff out. So all you have left is the good stuff. 
A producer listens to a draft to make sure all that audio is clean before it gets sent out to audiobook websites. There's what's called a QC listen. QC stands for quality control. And it's something we do with podcasts, too, to make sure nothing is out of place and everything sounds how it's supposed to. A process I am very familiar with. The number of retakes I do per episode is a secret I will never tell. Also, I tell a lot of really bad jokes that don't make it into the show, which is probably for the best. But it's one thing to do that for a 30-minute podcast episode. It's a way different job for a 10-hour audiobook. It's a lot. Oh, yes. And it can be painful. I have probably listened to hundreds of audiobooks, and most of them sound absolutely perfect. But every now and then, I'll hear something small, like a weird breath or a mispronunciation. And recently, I listened to an audiobook that mispronounced a Chicago street. They said Paulina, and it's supposed to be Paulina, which is one of those that, like, you know, it's a very specific Chicago thing. Like, yeah. I could totally understand not double checking. Well, first, I'll just say that you listing those things just raised, raised my I'm blood sorry. pressure. I'm like, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> these are the things that keep me up at night. It takes a village to get the audio version of a book out into the world. Everyone we talked to about making audiobooks had a certain reverence for the process, from the micro level with double-checking pronunciation to a more 20,000-foot view, reflecting on the importance of the medium. Here's producer Sarah Jaffe again. So much of why we read is to be transported into someone else's life or someone else's way of viewing the world. And, you know, books are really magical in that, you know, someone makes some marks on a piece of paper and it does that for you magically somehow. Um, I think audio enhances that and I think it brings the text to life in a way that's very visceral. And Maeve Higgins totally agrees from the point of view of someone who has narrated her own books, but also as a fan of audiobooks in general. When you write a book, you have to understand the the main way that book is going to be received is by somebody alone, you know, just one person in their head. It's such an internal thing that you trust. OK, I'm going to hand this over to you now and then you can take it in and, and feel it however you want or reject it. Um, and so I think having control over the audio, you know, sidesteps that a little bit which is not a very pure way and I still know lots of people who are like oh audiobooks are not the same as reading a book but um my poor brain like is so frazzled from the last I don't know just being alive (laughs) um I'm happy for someone to take on a little bit of the labor because in the end what's better than having someone tell you a story Greta Johnson hosts the Nerdette podcast from WBEZ Chicago You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The city of Phoenix is in court tomorrow after a judge there ruled it has to clear out its biggest homeless encampment. Last year, downtown businesses sued the city, saying the camp poses health and safety risks that keep customers away. Reporter Kirsten Dorman at member station KJZZ is following the case. Hey there. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So the homeless, the camp in question is called The Zone, and I understand it's been around for quite a while. 
That's right. And because it formed gradually over time, it's hard to say exactly how long the zone has existed, but it's been years. Mm. It formed where it did because it's near a 13-acre human services campus where different organizations provide services for unhoused people, and at its largest, roughly a 1,000 people lived there. But since the city started moving people out, the most recent count I've seen is closer to between seven and 800. So businesses challenged uh, this camp. The, city, the courts uh, sided with them. People are being moved out. But, but where are they going? Yeah, so the city of Phoenix doesn't own or operate its own shelter. So because of that right now, the director of the city's Office of Homeless Solutions says they're working with nonprofits and shelters to place people. Are, are there enough beds and spaces in the shelters that they're using? Not quite, but I've been told that so far they've been able to place everyone who wants to go to a shelter in one. It's important to say that the city isn't moving everybody out of the zone all at once. They're going block by block. So they've done three blocks since the beginning of May and so far have moved about 120 people. And they say they plan to clear two more blocks this month, which the city is also planning to open what it calls an outdoor structured camp by September 1st. Can you tell us more about what an outdoor structured camp is? Definitely. It's a place where people will be allowed to camp legally and safely. So the city will provide security and it's going to be on a lot downtown owned by the state. So all of this is happening right now uh, amidst a a major heat wave in the southwest. Phoenix is always hot uh, in the summer, but but climate change is certainly making it worse. It seems like it's been 100 plus degrees every day in the city recently. In short, yeah, it's incredibly hot. And the city, like you mentioned, in much of the Southwest is dealing with that heat wave this week. And here in Phoenix, it doesn't cool off at night. Last year, the there was a record set for deaths from heat-related causes in Maricopa County, which is where Phoenix is, and 420 people died, many of them unsheltered. The city says the new legal camp they're setting up will have a steel shade structure, and they're going to put down turf and use an existing warehouse on site as air-conditioned space. But again, that's not supposed to open until September, and we've already seen temperatures here hit 115. And the National Weather Service is predicting an extended heat wave that could set new records. It's forecast highs of at least 110 for the next week. Okay, so that's September. What is being done now amidst this incredible heat? Right, so Maricopa County is spending $3.8 million to do things like open more cooling centers. Outreach teams are being sent to places where people are living outside to distribute cold water, cooling towels, ice packs. Mm-hmm. So getting back to the original question, though, are, are people convinced that this new camp will, will solve the problems of, of the initial illegal one, the zone? Not everyone is. Phoenix's vice mayor, Yasmin Ansari, voted against using the lot for it. She says it's because it's just a few blocks away, so it's not really providing relief to that original neighborhood where the camp is now. That's Kirsten. But really, it's up for a judge to decide. Yeah. And uh, that, that's Kirsten Dorman, reporter for KJZZ in Phoenix. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Join the Radio Boston team Thursday, July 20th at City Space for an evening with Boston chefs showing off their best grilling skills in a live cooking competition. Tickets at WBUR.org events. 
From the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. At Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox beat the Oakland A's 4-3. The Sox hit the road for Chicago next Friday to now play the Cubs. Tonight, a chance for some showers and thunderstorms could be heavy at times. Temperatures in the upper 60s. Tomorrow, more showers and gusty winds, likely highs in the mid-70s. Right now, we have 72 degrees under cloudy skies in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says her trip to China was productive. She met with her Chinese counterparts this weekend and says that although the Biden administration has limited the export of some key technologies to China over national security concerns, the U.S. does not want to sever trade ties between the two countries. Phoenix, which is dealing with a homelessness crisis, is facing a deadline tomorrow to comply with a judge's ruling that says the city has to clear out the biggest homeless encampment in the state, which is home to hundreds of people. And Pope Francis has chosen 21 new cardinals, including prelates from Jerusalem and Hong Kong, places where Catholics are a small minority. They will be installed in September. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow, and I'm joined in the studio by NPR's Rachel Martin, who is here with another installment of her series, Enlighten Me. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Scott. I'm so happy to be here with you. Good to be here with you. So I am going to start with a question Okay. for you. Do you consider yourself to be a mindful person? I feel like... I would love to be and I aspire to be. But then I think about the fact that like every second of my day, there is a stimulus in my face. Yeah. It is mostly a phone or yeah. it is a computer screen yeah. or it is a combination of those things or, or a child or a kid. Right. And then I feel like in my quiet times where I like to think I'm being mindful, like what am I doing? I'm reading or watching or th- listening and just like. Getting more stimulus. Yes. Yes. Yeah. As part of this series where I'm interrogating different religious and spiritual traditions, I really wanted to look not just at mindfulness, but at kind of the theological roots of that as it's practiced in Buddhism. Which feels very different from a moment where people are trying to sell you mindfulness in many different ways. That's right. Yeah. Because it does pop up in the mainstream culture everywhere, right? You can spend thousands and thousands of dollars on so-called mindfulness retreats. I mean, when I go to my yoga classes, the teachers are rattling off instructions on mindfulness. My kids even study mindfulness in their public elementary school. I mean, it is in the culture in this new way. But I was looking for something deeper than that. So you didn't download Headspace. You didn't go to a (laughs) yoga class. Where did you go? I went to an actual Buddhist monastery. Wow. Yeah. It is a place, 
full of spiritual wisdom in the great state of New Jersey, where everyone goes for spiritual enlightenment. I was thinking of you like climbing this Tibetan mountain to get there, but no, you just <laughs> no, went to New not. Jersey. <laughs> I went to a monastery in West Orange, New Jersey. It is called Empty Cloud. But the story actually begins with five Buddhist monks walking into a frat house. Wait, is this is this a joke? This is not a joke. Okay. This is actually a thing that happened. Um, and it is where the story begins. Believe me, even the monks were clued in on the fact that this was a <laughs> surreal scene. All right, let's listen. How often do you have Buddhist monks in your frat house? <laughs> <laughs> we're just outside the campus of Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The monks are there. They've got shaved heads. They're wearing orange robes and sandals with socks. And they're practicing what is called almsgiving, meaning they hold a bowl and wait for people walking by to offer them some food, since monks can't make or buy themselves meals. They didn't have a lot of luck on the street, so a young woman who was staying at the monastery called up a friend of hers. He then rallied his frat brothers, and they guys, invited the monks over for tacos. You guys want to move that like, couch over here? A handful of college guys wearing pajama pants and hoodies escort the monks into the main living room. And it is a scene. Red Solo cups are lying in one corner, a box of Franzia wine and random hot sauce on another table, a bong on another. The whole place smells like weed. So you all live here together? Uh, they're both in the same fraternity as I am, but I'm, I'm the only one who lives here right now. At first, it all feels awkward, to be honest. And I'm a little worried these guys might be messing with the monks. But after a few minutes, it's clear that they are being respectful and they're asking legit, thoughtful questions. And as a mom, I'm sort of proud of them, even though it's clear that some of them are ditching class right now. So what made you want to like go into this type of lifestyle, I guess, would be the first question. I really wanted to have a job that I really loved and um, I wanted to be in a relationship where I was really in love. And after having accomplished that many times, I was still unhappy. And uh, then the, I met the Buddhists and um, they told me that everything is inherently unsatisfying. Hence, that's why I was still unhappy. And I was like, oh, that occurred to me. And so I started my practice and um, Chatting with a bunch of monks for a half an hour isn't likely to turn these guys into Buddhists, but who knows what seeds the conversation has planted in their 20-year-old brains. And that's sort of the deal with Buddhism. There's no official proselytizing, which is maybe why it's appealing to a lot of people. Buddhist monks might end up at your frat house for tacos, but they're not going to knock on the door to try and convert you. In fact, most of the time, they're at their monastery, doing their own individual spiritual work. Just before the pandemic, they moved their home base from Queens to this place, an old Catholic monastery in West Orange, New Jersey. The Augustinian monks who had lived there were downsizing and moving west, while Ayasoma and Bhante Sadaso, the co-founders of Empty Cloud Monastery, needed more space. They were just really overjoyed that another group of monks wanted to take over the monastery. The building itself has a medieval castle vibe. There's a stained glass window in the meditation room with an image of Noah's Ark on it. And there's a cross on the roof. For now, the monks jokingly say the cross stands for the Four Noble Truths, which can be distilled to this from the Buddhist teachings. Suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the way out of suffering. So that's all we are practicing is that um, for the cessation of suffering. Which sounds great, right? No one wants to suffer. I don't want to suffer. 
But I needed to understand why pulling away from modern life, the way the monks do, alleviates suffering. Because it's no joke what they have to give up. They pledge to live in celibacy. No meals after midday, no intoxicants of any kind, no pop culture, no money. They shave their heads, <laughs> leave everything behind. Ayasoma is from Italy, and she moved to the U.S. years ago to work as a fashion journalist. Then she ditched it all for life as a monk. Bonte Sadaso grew up in a conservative evangelical family in Colorado and found Buddhism right after college. When I was a layperson, which was a very long time ago now, it was 15 plus years ago, um, I needed to always have music playing. Like, if I was in the car, I had music playing. If I wasn't in the car, I had headphones in. Like, it was just constant. And so then getting into this life, it's like, well, one of our rules is that we don't listen to music. So clearly I don't need that in order to be happy. I thought I needed that, but I don't need it. Do you miss music, though? No. (laughs) You don't? (laughs) Yeah, essentially from the fear of missing out, from FOMO, we go to JOMO, the joy of missing out. I still don't exactly understand what these two get out of this very restrictive lifestyle. What is Buddhism freeing them from personally? And I really want to know what they make of the fact that when I googled Buddhist retreat, a whole slew of places popped up where I could probably also get a hot stone massage and a facial peel. So that's actually a relatively complex question. So right now they're ringing the bell for evening tea time. time. <laughs> yeah, or actually we could continue in the, the Dhamma halls. Yeah. Turns out monks are highly scheduled people. It's time to move to a different room, where we join the other residents, the lay people who stay at the monastery for days or weeks at a time. We're all situated on individual meditation pillows, the monks facing the rest of us at the front of the room. Everyone sips tea and eats small pieces of cheese and dark chocolate, which are the only approved evening snacks. There's a big golden statue of the Buddha on the mantle above the fireplace. Bhante Sadaso pets the black monastery cat named Teddy. Uh, So Rachel, um, you were starting to ask a question a few minutes ago. I was. I'm very curious about um, how certain tenets of Buddhism have made their way into the mainstream American culture and especially in the, if we can call it like, like the mindfulness movement. I wondered if that's a good thing or, or does it dilute Buddhism to have it exist in this kind of secular form in the culture? Or does it just mean that more people are exposed to even a little bit of it, and that's good? I think it's a mixed. It's mixed. Um, So the Buddha does identify mindfulness as being a wholesome characteristic of mind. So wholesome in the sense that it's it's beneficial, it, it brings happiness, it leads towards awakening. But it's still only one out of eight factors of of the Eightfold Path. So if one is only practicing mindfulness, then at best you're practicing uh, 12.5% of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. um, which is not a complete path to awakening. So it's kind of like if you're making a cake, and a cake calls for eight ingredients, and you're like, well, I'm just going to leave out seven of those ingredients, and here's a bowl of raw eggs. It's like, well, that's not a cake, that's a bowl of raw eggs. Here at the monastery, they're interested in the whole cake, which involves rising before sunrise, chores in the house and the yard, finishing your meals before noon, and lots of chanting and meditation. 20 minutes of chanting is then followed by up to an hour of silence. 
Well, we just wrapped up our first few hours here at Empty Cloud. I'm back in my room and meditating was hard. I was just all over the place. I was trying to focus on a mantra, loving kindness, breathe in, loving kindness, breathe out. But then I would be like, are they really not going to feed us dinner? And I was thinking about the kids. I'm going to be so hungry tonight. Did Luke get them to baseball on time? How am I going to sleep? Did he make the mac and cheese the right way? And then I would try to think about loving kindness again. And it's really hard to nail the smoky eye. Do you like those ropes? I always get the eyeliner off. Different shades of orange and maroon. Did you get to pick your color? Loving kindness. And I opened my eyes and everyone was just so still. And I was like, why are you so good at meditating? must be really hard to be a monk. Needless to say, I did not reach any higher level of consciousness, but there were people who seemed to be. When I snuck a peek during the meditation, I caught a glimpse of this young woman named Katie McKenna. She's not a monk, but she's sitting perfectly still, no fidgeting. And she was always smiling. She had definitely figured something out. I hardly ever have anxiety anymore. I just feel a lot of a lot of joy. How long have you been a Buddhist? I've probably known in my heart that I was Buddhist for about 10 years, but I would say I was, I've been a practicing Buddhist for about three. Earlier this year, Katie was laid off from her tech job, and then she hightailed it here to her happy place. She tries to visit monasteries whenever she can. I grew up in Indiana, so there's a lot of Christianity around, around me. Um, and I feel like people would like just proselytize and like tell me like this is the way. Um, so I feel like I've I've just had this like innate trust with Buddhism because there was this teaching to come and see for yourself. Is there any part of you that wants to be a monk? Yeah, that that does that does come up for me from time to time. Um, and it's come up for my boyfriend too. Actually, like we broke up for a little bit. Um, in September briefly because we were both struggling with like fully giving ourselves to the relationship because we both had this inclination in our mind towards monasticism. They stop watching TV and movies, no music, no dinner. They meditate for long periods of time every day. The cool thing about this path is it just starts happening to you. It definitely wasn't just happening to me. I mean, I'd only been at this for a few days, but I was more interested in a form of Buddhism that was going to let me live in my actual life. I needed to talk to someone who wasn't about to shave her head and move into a monastery. I found Suda Ram. In Sanskrit, it means the nectar from the flowers. Suda wasn't staying at the monastery like the others, but she lives in the neighborhood and comes over a lot. The more you meditate, I think you get closer to your purer, purer form of yourself. Mm and it's really helping. Within a few minutes of talking, it becomes clear that Suda has endured a lot of disappointments in life. And right now she's working through problems in her marriage. She tells me Buddhism has taught her things her Hindu faith never did. I give loving kindness to myself. I give loving kindness to the other people who need to be given loving kindness. That helps a lot because in the anger, the rejection, and uh, you know, the, the ill feelings that come often, I think she's about to share more about her relationship with her husband or her kids or something about work, but she starts telling me about her dog, a golden retriever named Simba, who died not long ago. The dog came to her in her dreams. And he said, Mom, what did you learn from me? 
I had to think. You know, he was very loving. He was a golden retriever. He loves people. He loves pets. He loves everybody. So I said, "Yeah, you are very loving." And he, you know, he what he said, "Mom, you are very loving too, but you still have judgment. You still judge. You still judge. I'm not judge. I love everybody. So that's the difference. You learned that from me. Do it." So I know how crazy this sounds. There I am sitting in the basement of this Buddhist monastery talking with a woman I barely know about her dead dog who talks to her in her dreams. And tears are welling up in her eyes and then in mine. And I get that her grief and loneliness are bigger than the story she's telling me in this moment. And we hold hands across the table And I share my own losses with her, and none of it is healed, but there is a comfort in that shared intimacy between strangers. Letting go may be the Buddha's precept for ending suffering, but I think just as important as the letting go is the letting in. Letting monks into the frat house, letting a journalist into your monastery, letting a stranger into your grief. Yes, the ultimate enlightenment happens internally. When you free your mind from attachment and longing, But awakening also happens when you're willing to step into the breach with someone else, to be present in their pain, and for them to witness yours. Pali is the ancient language of Buddhism, and Ayasoma told me her favorite Pali word is kampa. Which literally means trembling together. Um, So we realize that we're all here trembling together. Sometimes we focus a lot on our trembling or the trembling of the other person, but we don't realize that it's actually the same trembling and we're all trembling together. Buddhism may teach that the individual has the power to ease their own suffering, but true contentment requires us all to care about each other. It's not just about being alone in our mind on the mat. Even Buddhist monks still have to engage with the rest of the world and the world has to engage back. 